By the dawn of the 1980s, all eyes in the basketball world were on Howard Garfinkel's camp, as TV crews began to flock to figure out why Five Star had so much cachet in the college basketball space. The cameras were all on the players at the camp, and Five Star was now the biggest stage in basketball. But Garf was still the star of his own show. If a kid comes to Five Star, he will get three things that he cannot get in any other camp in the country. And they are the three most important. Those three things are competition, exposure, and instruction. Five Star's reach is staggering. With over 10,000 players who went on to earn D1 scholarships, that's a lot of phone calls for Garf, and more than 500 players who went on to play in the NBA. But the majority are in a pressure cooker, a pressure made more intense by the fact that Garfinkel's rating report is sold to all the major colleges. The camp was a crash course in building good work habits. It was also an opportunity to be seen by the top college coaches in the country, all in hopes of getting basketball's golden ticket, a five-star rating from Garf, and a chance to earn a college scholarship. But it wasn't all glamorous. You know, you're not going to sleep much. The food sucks and it's hot as hell. In this episode, we will dive into the daily grind of a five-star camper with firsthand accounts from the players who lived it, like a humble hooper named Grant Hill, who made a life-altering decision that would lead to one of the greatest moments in college basketball history. I remember having reservations because I knew Coach K had played and coached with Coach Knight. We'll feature some amazing stories about the great bonds that were made and rivalries that were born outside on the blacktop. They end up having one of the most fierce one-on-one -on -one games on a side court, and Garf got so pissed. And we'll highlight the many standout players during the camp's basketball boom, starting in the mid-80s up to the new millennium, with the help of God Sham God, Coach K, Ben Gordon, Maverick Carter, Meta Artest, and even more legendary five-star alumni. I am Tate Frazier, Welcome to the world of Five Star. Five Star has been woven into the fabric of basketball, whether you know it or not. The orange shirt itself was a symbol of excellence, and it let fellow Hoopers know you were the real deal, especially for Grand Hill growing up in the DMV. Maybe going to pick up game, maybe going to watch some older kids play in some summer leagues. You might see a five-star shirt, and it almost, to me, symbolized like, okay, you were special. You're right, that iconic shirt, it was sort of like an unspoken, you know, wink at each other, like, hey, you know what, you're, you're part of a pretty cool fraternity. Unlike Kevin Connors and Grand Hill, who went to five-star, Jay Billis just loved the nostalgia behind the classic orange and white shirt. I have a five-star basketball t-shirt that I bought from Slam Magazine, and I never went to five-star. Over the course of a summer, as many as 3,000 high school players paid hundreds of dollars to attend Garf's camp, all in hopes of seeking a five-plus rating, signifying super potential to dominate at the D1 level. But that doesn't mean it was the glamorous experience most would imagine when thinking of the modern five-star recruit as 1999 five-star camper Maverick Carter can confirm. You know, they didn't give you sneakers and there was no nice hotel. It was just like shitty dorm rooms, food, and you went to hoop. And Mav wasn't alone. 2004 national champion, Bing Gordon. 
it's not like AAU, you know, it wasn't pretty, you know, there wasn't like sneakers and stuff being given out. You had that one little five-star shirt and you had to make that last throughout the whole week. It made it a level playing field. Whether you was Michael Jordan to somebody you didn't know, it was like, no, we said get up in the morning for this station, we get up in the morning for this station. If you ain't do it, you're going to the alligator pit. You're going to run the hills. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. As New York basketball legend God Sham God said, every camper was on an even playing field. And every day started the same way. Whether you were Ben Gordon, Muggsy Bogues, or ESPN's Kevin Connors, it all started with a wake-up call from Garth. Garth would wake us up every morning. He would have this call, and you'd just hear it over the intercom, probably like 6 in the morning or however early it was. Everybody up. Yep. Everybody up. Hey, campers. Everybody up. Everybody up. Everybody up. Don't run, just a little hustle. And he'd be singing that song. It's a beautiful morning. Yeah, let's go outside and stretch. Ah, man, like I didn't sleep well last night because I had these dudes joking around all night or playing pranks. So you might be up until two in the morning or something like that. Everybody got to get up out their bunks, you know, report to whatever it was station or breakfast. At breakfast, you know, Garf would be, oh, he's over at that table right there. He's the guy that's in charge of all this. Man, if you're at that table, that's like an audience with the Pope. He was the godfather of basketball. Whatever he said was golden. But the day really got started when the players broke out in the teaching station, implemented by legendary Indiana coach Bobby Knight. Knight came from coaching at Army, so the camp was set up like a basketball boot camp, and it was led by some of the best coaches in basketball as they taught and demonstrated the different fundamentals at each station. Well, as a camper, you're waking up in the Poconos, and it's cold in the morning. The sun breaks through, it gets warm as the day goes on, but it's cold. And you're going through stations with all these coaches trying to make a name for themselves as well. And uh, it was very intense. Every morning, you got like eight stations working on your handle, working on your shot, working on your post moves. You had dribbling stations, you had shooting stations, you had defensive stations. And it was outside. You know, like the other camps later on, like the Nikes, ABC, they, they was good camps, but they was more like, you just go play. You know, because that's what it was back then. Kind of seeing where a kid was as opposed to him just playing you see some of the skill sets, you know, that he may have and he may possess because potential is always could be there. As Muggsy mentioned, this was one of the ways the coaches could gauge players' potential. I always based it on how much better can he get. And that's the rankings, the five-star rankings are based on potential, not based on where they're at at that time. You could watch a kid in stations. You know, how do they compete one-on-one, two-on-two? What are their attitudes about being taught? This is a big thing. Now you can watch how they're being coached. Five Star was the only place Coach K spoke besides his own basketball camp. It was also where he watched more than a handful of his future Duke stars for the first time. At Five Star, you watch that, but you could also watch how they're being taught. You know, like what kind of practice player is this guy? How does he pay attention to a coach in, in an individual station? There's so many things like that that you could evaluate. And as a result, you know, we made decisions based on those. It showed the character of a kid and how much he wanted to learn, not just how much he wanted to play. As opposed to the camps where you just played games, the station set five-star apart. But what set the players apart 
was the infamous Station 13. Station 13. Station 13. Station 13. Station 13, where you could go and kind of like get extra work in. Future Yukon star and New York City standout, Ben Gordon. So like if you were smart and you wanted to make a good impression on people and you wanted to get better, you would go to Station 13. And Garvey used to always say, you don't have to go, but all the great players always go to Station 13. That's 1986 most outstanding player of the camp, J.R. Reed. And here's Mr. Station 13 himself, Rick Pitino. I actually came up with Station 13, which was the afternoon anybody who wanted to work on their offensive improvement, their skills to develop, away from the morning uh, stations would come to me if they didn't have a game. Here is Rick Pitino, who at the time was a coach um, who I didn't know played college basketball and was a good college basketball player. So he's teaching myself, Billy Thompson and Patrick Ewing, these back-to-the-basket moves. In the summer of 1980, five-star camper and 1985 national champion Ed Pickney learned a valuable lesson from Station 13 inventor Rick Pitino. He pulls us all out and dares us to block his shot. And I just can remember trying to jump to the top of the backboard and and block a shot. But he had a reverse pivot Jack Sigma turnaround shot that he developed. And, you know, none of us at the time could block a shot. Right then and there, you would see the guys in the camp who were trying to get better, who were hungry. You know, I was one of those guys, man. I would go to Station 13 and try to get extra work in and try to improve as the camp was going on. But it was definitely hard, man. Like, you had to have thick skin. Or if you didn't, by the time you left there, you know, you definitely developed some callus. As Bing Gordon mentioned, this is what really let the coaches know who wanted to be one of the greats. And Garf was always pushing players to go to Station 13, go to Station 13. But if you weren't a top prospect, like Maverick Carter, it was a place to showcase your dedication and to be seen by the top coaches. If you're a guy like me, who wasn't a guaranteed kind of high major division one guy. You want the coaches, the college coaches to know you work hard too and you do the extra. The beauty of it was that it was hard and it sucked and it was hot, but you kept going back for more because if you're a hooper, that's part of it and you love it. Watching from the sideline were the two most powerful scouts in the sport, Tom Kinchowski. Tom, at that point, was probably as much the scouting service as Garth because this guy was uh, never forget a name, never forgot my kids' names, their birthdays. I mean, this guy's memory was like ridiculous. And of course, the godfather himself, Howard Garfinkel. Garth would say, I'm the king of the guards. If he watched a guard and thought they could play, he knew no one would judge a guard. He called himself the king of the guards. If he said you was a good player, you was a good player. If he said you need to get better, you need to get better. And he was one of those people that he would always tell you the truth, even in good times, bad times. He would curse you out at times. Behind them, surrounding the court, were the 250 college coaches who paid for Garf's HSBI. That was one major benefit of subscribing to his service. You have coaches watching you play, wearing their, you know, their clothes. Or, you know, it could be Rutgers or UMass or Carnegie Mellon, Duke. You know, they have their gear on. And so for me, it was the first time to have that amount of people watching you. And you're aware that they're watching you play. For most of the players like Grand Hill, this was their first taste of the pressure that came with the big business of basketball. Here's Coach Pete Gillen in 1984 speaking to a reporter about what the college coaches in attendance were really looking for at Five Star. 
you know, we look for talent, obviously, and attitude, Jim, you know, which kids are good kids, and we talk to the coaches that coach the kids. We don't talk to the kids. That's, you know, not allowed, but try to find out what type of person he is and, you know, athletic ability, combination of both. This is the real dynamic at play. Coaches were searching for the next star to take their program to the next level, and Gillen eventually found his five-star while coaching at Providence in point guard God Sham God. After the morning full of hard work at stations, the players would head off to lunch. It was almost like a military thing, like everyone's eating now, get to the mess hall, you're at these tables. Which brings us to another distinct difference between the five-star experience and today's five-star recruit. It was just a little bit different. God Sham God worked as a waiter, just like Michael Jordan before him. I was top 10 player in the country and I came to the camp as a worker. And you know what I did while I was in the camp still playing? I worked. I was picking up the trays, cleaning the cafeteria, going back and forth, because that was for me to go to five-star. And Grant Hill told you in the last episode, this was considered a badge of honor. Shocking, I know. You were exalted and put on a pedestal if you were invited to be a servant. And no matter if you were a blue-chip junior or a freshman finding your footing, one thing's for sure, this was not going to be a five-star meal. Campus food in a cafeteria is bad, but it's really bad when school is closed. So we ate Robert Morris campus food in the summer months. So school wasn't even open. So imagine how shitty that food is in the cafeteria. It was just the, the roughness that you had to get over. The bad food, the cold mornings, the outdoor courts. It, it was not palatial at all. Once the campers survived the mess hall, they would head to arguably the most impactful part of the five-star day. The lectures. How many of you like to be as good as Michael Jordan? Well, let me tell you to start with that you got no chance. <laughs> this is where legendary coaches and pros came to share their knowledge and hold court with some of the game's future stars. It's amazing when you look at the roster of coaches and pro players who came back to lecture. To help show you what I mean, I just dug up a handful of five-star brochures. You can hear the paper. I, I got them all in front of me. This is what Garf and Will would mail out every year to spread the word and recruit kids to the five-star camp. It tells you everything you need to know. How to enroll, suggested clothing, the facilities, the activities, the staff, and most importantly, with their pictures by their names, it gave you the resident coaches and the pro players for each session. It's a who's who of the basketball world dating back to 1966. And they're filled with just about every basketball player or coach you can think of. For example, at the 24th annual five-star basketball camp, Coach K was the featured lecturer. As I flip through, there's legends like Dean Smith, who Garf captioned as the game's top innovator, ESPN's Dick Vitale, Calvin Murphy, Duke star Christian Leitner, who Garf labeled as the lone wolf, and here in the 29th annual, there's two-time NBA all-star with the Sixers, Jeff Rulin. Jeff Rulin blocked my shot one time when he was doing the lecture, and he was like, who want to come up and give a demonstration. I raised my hand. I always raised my hand. I always raised my hand. I want to do every single demonstration. <laughs> and who else did you see there, Meta? Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown. Multiple times I've seen him lecture and it was just so inspired. I, I miss those days, man. I really do. That's just an appetizer of the amount of talent who came back to lecture. For players like Grant Hill, this was another stage to showcase his skills to the coaches and to Garf. A lot of times they're bringing out the best players in the camp to demonstrate 
and to sort of put people through the various drills that they're having us do. And so, you know, I remember a lot of times I was brought out there. And so it was cool to kind of be in the presence of greatness. It could also be a place where players were called out and made an example of. Here's a story Muggsy Bogues told me about his experience in the summer of 1982. I remember being there with Rick he, he was one of the, uh, the guests. And I recall him calling me out, talking about, uh, you know, this one kid that's out here just throwing all these fancy passes behind my back, behind his head, and making me want to throw up. And, and then all of a sudden he says, little, little guy named Muggsy. And then I was like, oh my God, I can't believe he just called me out like that. And then when I got home, back to school, I get a letter offering me to come to, to Boston University. So I, I got a big kick out of that. And what'd you do with that letter, Muggsy? Well, to be honest, I, I tore it up. And I was like, coach, I can't believe what he embarrassed me. I felt so bad. I said, ain't no way I'm going to that university. Ain't no way I'm visiting. So that was the end of that. And you know, I never told Rick Martino that story. I never had an opportunity to tell him that story. In the case of Grant Hill, a five-star lecture almost changed the entire trajectory of his career when Bob Knight decided to test him in front of the whole camp. I remember Bob Knight lectured us one time at Pitt 2 in Robert Morris, and we were in the cafeteria. And I was sitting close to him, and I remember at one point he looked to me and he said, who's the best player at the camp? And I was, you know, I was a rising senior that year, and I ended up being MVP that of the camp and the All-Star game. And so I, I'm thinking, oh, man, is this a loaded question? Like, you know, I don't know how to answer this. And I, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, I don't know. And then he kind of went off on me. And it was like, you know, you know, you know you're the best player. And, and, and I remember I was just like, okay, you know, let me make sure Indiana's not on my list. <laughs> Five Star was famously taught and played outdoors as the cold nights in the mountains of Pennsylvania turned into hot summer days on the blacktop. All of a sudden, the elements became one of the biggest factors. If you could shoot at Five Star, you could shoot anywhere because Five Star had the strongest and the tightest rims. You get the, you know, the wind factor and different things like that. So you really had to lock in on your skill set. And then most of all, you know, dribbling and cutting and stuff, you never really wanted to fall on the floor. So you had to make sure your footwork was impeccable. I was fortunate enough to get the MVP of the All-Star game my senior year. You know, I remember a move that everybody always talks about that I made. I had to drive the, the right side of the court where there was a hump in the court. There was a, a hump in the court. I had to get over that hump to make the crossover move down the lane. <laughs> that was probably the difference maker in the game. It was hot as hell and up in Honesdale. I remember having these um, shoes and like being on the court and you could feel the heat like through your shoes. Like, wow, like if I stand in one spot, it feels like I'm walking on hot coals, like that type of heat. The most legendary and timeless stories from the camp came to light in the afternoon during the games. In 1996, two players came to Five Star looking to prove they were undoubtedly the best high school player in the country. Ironically, that hot black top would be the best icebreaker between the two future first round picks, Elton Brand and Meta Artest. My last year, me and Elton Brand, we got player of the camp. They, they couldn't pick which one to give it to. <laughs> Elton was one of those guys where I used to go at his neck and he'd go at my neck. <laughs> Man. Elton was just like, how more power forward than I was. We was both strong, but he was stronger, you know? And I remember, like, not being able to do much with him and vice versa. We became friends because we had, well, for one, Elton came to the court with a hole in his shoes with both of his toes 
was poking out the front of his shoes. And I had one of my toes poking out the bottom of my shoe. I felt so bad for Elton. I was talking to my boy. I said, yo, I got to give him my shoes, yo. This is, this is crazy. So I said, hey, man, you need some shoes. That's how I met Elton. I was like, yo, you need some shoes? Because I can just, I can wear my other shoes. I got a little hole, but this only got a little hole. Your three toes is touching the ground. And, and he said, you know what he said? He said, nah. He said, I'm good. He played with those toes on the ground, and we was going to work. That Elton brand, man. As you can tell, this was a true blue-collar camp experience. And Garf didn't like when the battles distracted from the games themselves. But Maverick Carter witnessed one legendary battle at the camp in 1999 between Zach Randolph and Duke guard Dante Jones. One year I went, Zebo was there, as we call him, or Zach Randolph. He was gigantic, and he walked around and made jokes. And one week, him and Dante Jones, they end up having one of the most fierce one-on-one games I ever remember seeing in basketball on a side court. And Garf got so pissed because... It was totally distracting. All the kids were outside, were hooping outside of our moors. It's hot. And these two guys end up in this one-on-one match going at each other. We all know Dante talking shit. Fierce competitor. Zebo's big, backing them down. They're following each other. And I remember watching that and then later seeing them both have their amazing college and NBA careers. is a moment at Five Star I'll never forget for sure. Playing with a great player can raise your stock at Five Star. Maverick Carter found this out firsthand, running with the number one player in the country, future national champion at Duke, Jay Williams. Every college coach, high major, mid-major would come and watch, even the ones who had no shot at getting him, but they just wanted to see him play because he was so damn good. And because of that, I got seen by many, many schools. I got an offer coming out of that uh, week from Western Michigan. I got invited to Nike All-American camp. During and after the games, Garf was always lurking around, looking for the next player to take under his wing. And if he approached you, you always listened. God Sham God caught Garf's eye from the very start, and he took him aside to share stories of another former five-star camper. When I wasn't ranked, when nobody didn't know me, he was the first person to recognize how hard I worked. And I was just getting, like, recognized for dribbling and stuff. He used to tell me these stories about Isaiah Thomas and things like that. And he gave me a cassette tape of Isaiah Thomas, like, when he was in Five Star. And he was like, you need to study this. One of the best examples of Five Star functioning at its peak and one of Garth's favorite success stories was the recruitment of Grand Hill. A five-star fixture throughout high school, Hill attended the camp for the final time before the start of his senior year. By then... He had established himself as one of the country's top recruits, and Carolina and Duke were his top two schools. You know, Garf, he was a big advocate for me. You know, he thought I was, I was a point guard. You know, he was one of the first to say, you know, I think you could be a point guard because I could really handle the basketball. A lot of times at the camp, you know, because you're one of the tallest there, you're a center or power forward. But I brought the ball up a lot, you know, and crossed you up and dribbled and, you know, did all of that. And so... I was told actually by Garf that I could go to Carolina and play point guard. And so I didn't necessarily hear that from Carolina, but I heard that from Garf. And I was a Carolina fan. My last camp at at Five Star was probably leaning towards Carolina. This particular week during the games, Garf was excited to show a coach eight miles down Tobacco Road this long, talented wing with guard-level skills. I do remember the first time I saw Grant, and that was at Five Star. And it was in an outside court. And uh, I was with Howard, 
we were watching the game and I'm watching and I said, all right, unless I'm nuts, this is the best player I've ever seen in high school. It was no secret that Garth thought highly of Mike Krzyzewski, who in 1989 was still looking for his first national championship at Duke. Garth wasn't surprised when Coach K saw the five-star potential in Grand Hill. He was not yet picked to be that best player. And Howard said, yeah. And I had a hard time convincing Grant because he was so humble that he was better than a kid from New York. I'm not going to mention names or the kid from D.C., from Baltimore or whatever. I said, no, you are not. I'm not. I said, no, no, you are. Because he was afraid he wouldn't be able to play at Duke. And I said, no, no, you're going to be not a player. You're going to be a you're going to be a great player. Later on that summer, because I ended up committing to Duke, you know, shoot, this was j- early July of 89. I committed to Duke in September. So I remember having reservations because I knew Coach K had played and coached with Coach Knight. And I think I even brought it up to Coach K. He assured me that a lot of his principles and foundation are very similar, but his personality was very different. And so sort of a polite way to say that, no, I'm not Bobby Knight. And uh, <laughs> so that was that was a good thing. Despite the Bob Knight lecture, Coach K got his guy. The duo would go on to win a pair of national championships at Duke before Hill became a seven-time NBA All-Star. I'd say that decision worked out pretty well for Grant Hill and not so well for me as a Carolina fan. Because of the respect level and the competition and the way he mixed the teams up, you know, you got brotherhoods from other places. Five Star is the place where some of basketball's best talents, like God Sham God, formed lasting bonds with players from different cities across the country. You know, me and Chauncey Billups is one of my closest basketball friends to this day. You know, Shantae Rogers, Stephon Marbury, you know, Rasheed Wallace, Jerry Stackhouse. In fact, Sham God formed an unlikely bond with one Duke standout who had a knack for slapping the floor. Like, this is a perfect example of five-star. Of course, I'm a black kid, African-American kid from the hood of New York. Steve Wojciechowski is a white kid from where he's from. Severna Park, Maryland. And we went to five-star so many times together that when we played them in the NCAA tournament, we became so close that even when we beat them, we was leaving. He stopped our bus and came on our bus and gave me a hug and was like, man, I'm just proud of you, man. Just keep it going. Before the game, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, Wojo, he's going to slap the floor. He's going to do all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I know Wojo. We played against each other so long. I'm like, that's my guy. And they're like, what? That's your guy? How's that your guy? I'm like, yo, you know how many times we've been to five-star together? I'm like, yo, that's like my basketball brother. Like, yo, that's one of my, like, closest friends. And everybody's like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, because we just had so much respect for each other battling. And like I said, the way golf ran the camp, especially when you look at the era now, It wasn't no black or white. It was like basketball players. We didn't really kind of socialize with one another. Occasionally, we might see each other at functions, at parties, at social events, and we didn't really speak. Even though Grant Hill became close with Travis Best, a teammate at the camp, and Brian Reese, the bonds made there didn't always last especially on Tobacco Road. You know, Virginia and Georgia Tech and Florida State and Maryland. Like, I knew all those guys, and we would hang out, you know. But the Carolina guys, it was just different. And there was real tension. And as I like to say, and you probably know this because you went to Carolina, it was like living with the enemy because you were so close. You know, it was hard to maintain that friendship. 
In addition to stations, lectures, and games, a steady five-star diet, there was one-on-one tourneys, foul shooting contests, situation tournaments, free play, and the famed orange-white all-star classics. And every camp week ended with Garf taking center stage to give out his five-star awards. Trophies were awarded in all leagues, the NCAA, the NBA featuring the nation's best rising seniors, and the Development League, as Coach Calipari will explain. I was one of the original coaches in the Development League. And what they would do is take 90 players that are the best sophomores, rising sophomores in the country, and form one league. What a genius move. Now, others have done it since then. The team I coached of sophomores at Five Star was better than the team I coached at UMass. Garf gave out awards for playoff MVP, most improved, best rebounder, best playmakers, best defender, high scorer, one-on-one tourney champ, Mr. Hustle, role player of the week, along with sportsmanship and most promising prospect plaques. As you can see, Garf gave out more awards than the Emmys. But long before the Larry O'Brien Trophy or the Naismith Award, there was the first basketball achievement that signified you belong with the elite of the elite. When I got MVP at Five Star, then my whole career just took off. It was winning the Five Star Most Outstanding Player Award, as Meta Artest will tell you. Michael Jordan went to Five Star, right? And then he got MVP. I went to Five Star, I got MVP. You know what I'm saying? And I always like to see, oh, wow. I think LeBron James, he went to Five Star too, I think, right? He got MVP, right? He won MVP in Development League and in the NBA because they called him up because he was so good. Luckily for us, the legacy of Five Star and the skills taught at the camp lived through the biggest star in basketball this century. Well before he was tabbed the chosen one by Sports Illustrated and battled NYC phenom Lenny Cook at the 2001 ABCD camp, LeBron James first made headlines by making history as the only player to win MVP in both divisions at the Five Star camp in 2000. Here's Maverick Carter to tell you why LeBron's five-star experience epitomized who he is as a player, and more importantly, as a person. So they asked him to move up to NBA, and he's not the type of guy that likes to leave anyone behind, right? See my career, right? Me. So he said, I'll do it only if you guys let me. I have to be able to play in both. I have to be able to stick, stick with my development league team, and I'll go and play in the NBA. And they said, yes. And he dominated both, right? Playing four or five games a day. LeBron's high school teammate, Romeo Travis, will tell you what it was like playing long before he was crowned king. He was always the best player. So it was kind of weird, like, you know, going into our junior year, the following year, is when we started to pay attention to rankings and things of that nature a little bit more. But for us, we just relied on him to, you know, to be him, just to be the best player on the floor. We really didn't think about it as far as best player in the country. He's, he's better than him. He's better. Than, no, he's the he's the best player on our team, you know, and that's really all we cared about. Once LeBron won MVP in two different leagues, again, the first and only time ever at the camp, he was at the top of Garf's mind. His freshman year in high school, people definitely in the state, everyone knew him. But after five-star, Garf, this is part of his other job, right? He was a megaphone for anyone he saw. He wanted to tell the world that someone had just done something great at Five Star. So he went around the world telling people how great this kid from Akron was. So I heard about it. It was in our local paper about what he did at Five Star, and it was everywhere. LeBron's not the only outstanding Five Star to take note of in the second generation. Garf and Tom Kanchowski had a personal affinity for two-time Finals MVP and 2004 Most Outstanding Player, Kevin Durant. He's the Muhammad Ali of basketball. 
He floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. He has a great appetite for the game. He goes, during the summer, he'll come up and play in the Entertainers Classic. He'll play a Dykeman. He'll play a Nike Pro City. And he'll do this in different cities all around the country. He just loves to play. Finally, there's the most fundamentally sound guard in basketball. Someone Garf labeled one of the best high school players of the 2000s. 2002 most outstanding player at the camp, Chris Paul. Here's an exclusive clip of CP3 teaching Station 13 at Five Star back in 2011. As me being a lot shorter and smaller than them other guys, that's the thing I think that gives me the advantage when I play against other guys, is that I practice all this stuff day in and day out. So every time I step out onto the basketball court, one thing I don't have to have a problem with is where I want to go. So y'all keep working, all right? There's a legendary pipeline of stars that have come through the camp. Whether it was Carmelo Anthony and Dwayne Wade in 1999, Stephen Curry in 2005, or Kimba Walker in 2007. It's always been that way at Five Star, as Hubie Brown told me. You know, we can name all the guys that were at Five Star. We'd be talking for three hours, okay? College All-Americans and in the NBA. It also happened to include long, hot days on the eight outdoor basketball courts. So campers would eat, sleep, and dream basketball in between. Go home, probably lost like five or ten pounds. And those hard days weren't for everybody but it helped shape some of the greatest basketball players and professionals who went on to grind out successful careers on and off the court. Like an 11-year NBA veteran and the only rookie to win sixth man of the year in NBA history, Ben Gordon. If you serious about it, letting you see, you know, at an early age, like, okay, this path on being a pro, it's not all pretty. It's gonna be some challenges, it's gonna be tough, and it's gonna be a grind. And that philosophy dates all the way back to 1966 because it was all about basketball and a camp in its purest form. It's where you went to learn to play the game you love, all day, under the hot summer sun. And if you were lucky, you got to enjoy a cool down in the private lake. A personal highlight for Meta Artest. They opened up the cabins and said, swim time. First time I ever swim in the lake. Oh, wow. Thanks, Meta. Now we've heard from the players who lived through the five-star experience. But as you'll find out, as the camp became the hottest ticket in the summertime, Five Star wasn't just for the players. It was where coaches competed to take their career to the next level. The coaches were competing to be discovered by college coaches. On the next episode of The World of Five Star, we'll learn about the 300 head coaches that made the camp the gold standard for teaching basketball. I wonder how many guys who spoke at that camp are in the Basketball Hall of Fame. We'll hear about the place where all the game's best coaches congregated to share stories and knowledge together. We'd go to the fireside at nighttime and we'd have something to eat, a few beers, and we would move the salt and pepper shakers around and talk about drills. And we'll figure out what makes a great coach according to Garf and Tom, with a first-hand account from who they considered the best coach in today's game. They never paid you anything, but they did pay you because they paid you with that rite of passage. I am Tate Frazier, and this is the World of Five Star.